Welcome to the Lubbers Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And the two of us are rereading our favourite books, those Aubrey Matcher novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, we're making good headway through the Commodore. Could you catch us up, please, on where we got to last week and where we might be headed towards this week? I would be delighted. Thanks, Ian. Last week in Chapter 7, Jack and Stephen learned that Captain Thomas of the Thames owned slaves in his family business. Now, Jack, when they crossed the parallel, read his secret orders and talked with Stephen about this potential French invasion of Ireland that the second part of their mission will have them stopping, we hope. Huell provided valuable information about slavers. The stately surgeon asked Stephen to tell the Commodore about Captain Duff and his foremast hands. Jack couldn't figure out how to make a great din when they arrived in Freetown, and he was appalled upon seeing the first slaver that they captured, the Nancy. <laughs> and this time in Chapter 8, the squadron makes its presence known. Stephen trips himself up on his shore leave orders. Jack gains perspective on being a Commodore, and the African mission comes together. There's Pato's Miasmata and the Bite of Benin, and perhaps the cat in the hat will make himself seen. Sorry, I was I was going oh. for Dr. Seuss there, but I don't think it's quite <laughs> quite going to make it here. Well, I like the try. I like it. I like six out of ten for the effort, at least. Well, Mike, <laughs> we've been building up and building up towards the moment when we actually encounter the African shore. We've encountered a slaver, but at the opening of this paragraph, we encounter the African shore. It's Freetown in Sierra Leone. The sky is dark. There's oppressive heat. There are five ships that we see coming in through the pole of haze here. And we're seeing them from the perspective of people on shore. I might, this is a comedy moment, but there's some great depth behind the comic writing of these two guys who are watching this squadron of ships coming ashore here. They had already seen a powder hoy sail from the naval yard and had seen a number of these local guys, the crewmen, set off in a schooner. So they assumed that these ships would be men of war bound for the Cape or for India with merchantmen travelling along for protection. There had been rumours in Freetown that the preventive squadron was back, but these rumours were dismissed because the Nancy, as we heard of in the last chapter, the Nancy had been brought in by the governor's own sloop, and that was assumed to be acting as a privateer. So we get this kind of little bit of retroactive continuity here. This is what it all has looked like so far to the residents of Freetown. The preventive squadron, they say to themselves, would never have had two-decker ships like the ones that we can see here. And there's this great dialogue between a Syrian merchant and his friend about whether they might indeed be the preventive squadron. One calls the other the father of lies and says that nothing can be seen in this, this light, which he calls darkness visible, and admits that it is very like the death of time. And one says, well, I can indeed see two deckers. They seem to be headed for the Nancy that is anchored there in the road. And just at that moment, the first ship turns and fires at the Nancy. And the text describes it really well. A rolling broadside whose brilliant flashes lit the whole mass of cloud and whose voice, having deafened the town, roared to and fro among the hills. 
And Mike, the dialogue between the Syrian merchantman and his friend is no accident, right? There's some O'Brien Easter eggery for us to dig into there. Well, there really is, Ian. And 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 it's you know, as you say, it's hilarious the you know the names these two guys throw at each other, but some of their comments not so hilarious. So the father of lies, it's you know, the one is calling the other, a name for Satan from uh, John, the Gospel of John eight forty four. So chapter hmm. eight forty four. Darkness Visibles, a quote from Milton's Paradise Lost, calling to mind one of, some people say, the, the protagonist of the story, Satan, the prince of darkness. And so these are apt images for this whole area, kind of the epicenter of slavery with the death of time suggesting the apocalypse. And it's it's interesting, you know, these are two guys on, on two different sides of the argument of, is this the preventer squadron returned or not? Yeah. You know, they're people who are arguing pro-slavery, anti-slavery. And uh, I'm glad that, you know, we've come so far, we've gotten beyond calling each other, you know, Satan or Hitler or things like that. Uh, well, <laughs> you would hope. <laughs> never mind. Maybe, maybe we're not as far away from this as we think. No. And it's it's a really dramatic opening to the chapter. The, the drama goes on as we get a bit more detail of what's happening with these ships. One by one, all of the ships in the squadron that are coming inbound here fire. And the text talks about how these, there are these longer stabs of fire and deeper, louder v- voices coming from the big guns, the 32-pounders. And in the smoky silence following the last ship's broadside, there are birds flying in every direction and there's amazement and conjecture throughout the town. And now we get sort of semi-direct, semi-reported speech of people just kind of about the town here. It was the French. It was the patriarch Abraham come again. It was the captain of an English man of war enforcing the law against slavery. He had caught the wretched nittle of the Nancy sailing under Spanish colours. That at least seems to be pretty in line with the truth. He had chained him and all his men to the mast probably fanciful, and was now shooting and burning them to death. And they're all rationalizing what's been going on here. It's clearly the Nancy, but they're trying to explain to themselves why is it that the squadron is lining up here just to shoot at what seems like actually the empty hulk of the Nancy. So this explanation about them being men chained to the mast has gained some general support, but the ships come back and fire on the Nancy again two at a time. And news spreads around among the different townspeople who can see, they think, mutilated victims in their chains, some of them still alive. And there's another prodigious crescendo lighting the sky as the cannonades come into play, firing much faster with heavier shot than the great guns. And after all of this pounding, the Nancy sinks into the sea. And Mike, I, I, I love this. It's a, a demonstration. It's what people in the military might call a show of force. It has no practical military purpose except as a demonstration of power and of the presence of this squadron. And I, I love it. I love it because we're sticking it to the slavers, right? I love it because this is new for Jack, I think. A, a few books ago, Jack would have thought of lots of uses for gunnery and cannon fire, but he wouldn't thought of quite this kind of civilian demonstration as an honorable outlet for for gunfire. Stephen might have found all kinds of ways to persuade and suborn opinion in a town, but he might not have thought of using Jack Aubrey's skills to do it. So I like this little combination Jack and Stephen movement about this episode here. And great. Everybody's happy, including the townspeople who are telling lurid stories about what's really going on. 
Right, right. Yeah, it, this uh, shock and awe demonstration that the ministry wanted, you know, Jack has certainly delivered it at, right. at its supper. Stephen's underscoring that. He tells Jack that, you know, the ministry could not have asked for a greater display or a more convincing proof of the squadron's presence. So if indeed this is to sort of tell the French, hey, you're fine. Don't worry about that squadron. They're really going to Africa. They, they have nothing to do with your island mission. You know, he thinks that's been accomplished here. And Jack compares the demonstration to a Guy Fawkes night. You know, so he really Ooh. was a Guy Fawkes night. And he's so grateful that the governor made these discreet arrangements that you were telling us about, Ian, to kind yeah. of make the townspeople really think, no, 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 it's not the Preventer Squadron. Oh, but wow, it is. And Jack adds to Stephen, if the breeze serves, there'll be an even more convincing proof by tomorrow evening a stroke against the slave trade that will make Wilberforce and Macaulay skip and clap their hands and get drunk as lords, the text says. <laughs> I can't, from what little I know of Wilberforce and Macaulay, I can't imagine them being the kind of coves to get drunk as lords. But, 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 but tell us who they were, Mike, because they're an important part of the context for this whole slavery story. They are. They are. So William Wilberforce, son of a, a wealthy merchant, member of parliament, had a deep religious conversion in 1787 and dedicated himself to abolishing the slave trade. And this guy was persistent. He introduced bills from 1790 through 1806, all of them defeated, sometimes narrowly. In 1807, the administration changed from Tory to Whig and the act passed with overwhelming support. However, even though this act passed, the practice of slavery continued, especially in Britain's Caribbean colonies. Yeah. Um, so from 1813 to 1825, and in 1825, Wilberforce had to retire because of his health, but he continued to work to emancipate existing slaves. He helped found this West African colony of Sierra Leone, this one that we're, you know, hmm. Freetown is the capital of. And he died in 1833, just as the final Abolition Act was passing through Parliament. So, you know, fascinating story. Um, yeah. We had two other guys mentioned in the text. Uh, at first, uh, Stephen is suggesting maybe Romilly and, and then Macaulay. And Jack's like, yeah, no, no, Wilberforce and Macaulay. Zachary Macaulay was a Scots-English philanthropist who became an ardent opponent of slavery. He had worked as an accountant on a Jamaica plantation, so he saw this up close and firsthand and became the first governor of Sierra Leone in, in huh. 1784. He played a leading role in Wilberforce's campaign to abolish the trade. The other guy that you know Stephen suggested is Sir Samuel Romilly. He had been a member of parliament. When he first came to parliament, he made a really big speech condemning slavery in 1806. But you don't hear a lot from him in Parliament, but as a private lawyer, he was involved in several cases against illicit slavers in the colonies. Yeah. So it, it's great to kind of track the evolution of points of view and the evolution of the kind of influence of these people that we now can look back on as as pioneers in anti-slavery movement like, they, like, like Wilberforce. Um, I think we've also mentioned uh, Newton, John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. Um, he wrote that quite late in, in his life, later on in the 19th century. He was involved in the anti-slavery movement, having 
been a Royal Navy sailor in dubious circumstances, got pressed, deserted, found himself aboard a slave ship, fell out with the captain, was actually imprisoned himself as a slave for a while in Sherbro, right where the action of this novel is happening, and then took off uh, on a ship that I think we believe rescued him. And he himself ended up almost shipwrecked in a storm-ravaged ship that finally found its way to the shores of Ireland. So we've got a personality here who's connected with slavery and is connected with a voyage from the Bight of Benin here um, up to Ireland. So there's all kinds of parallels. It's really, really great. So the big demonstration in the harbour here is done. And the next day, everyone's watching out for their friends, friends who had slipped away before the height of yesterday's gunfire. They're excited about the possibility of prizes and the shore leave that they're all longing for once all the squadron ship's boats return. And everyone cheers at these, as these boats come into view, bringing with them an improbable number of prizes. At least five schooners, two brigs, and a fully rigged ship. And as Jack had hoped, there's yet more astonishment in the town than they'd had with the, uh, the Nancy demonstration the night before. Nobody's ever made a haul of captured slavers quite this big and people with an interest in the slave trade can all see that these vessels that have been captured are all slavers. So there's no doubt this isn't just random privateering or repression. This is targeted at the slave trade. And once again, Mike, I think if you're the person writing the copy in the newspapers in London a few months prior saying, we're going to take care of the slave trade, you'd be really happy with this really, really visible impact that this campaign's having here. So the townspeople are excited. The people of the ships of the squadron are excited. There's going to be prize money for the sailors. They're going to be bringing the prize money on shore. And that means, you know, a little economic boom for Sierra Leone here. Um, and there's bounty for each released slave to the amount of £60 for a man slave, £30 for a woman and £10 for a child. That's going to be shared amongst the, uh, the Navy crews here. All of the returning boats can now serve as liberty ships, ferrying people ashore. So there's the possibility of a really big party time here on shore in Freetown. And the uh, sailors are hurrying below to beautify themselves. But Mike, this is a Patrick O'Brien book. And we're only just getting started with the chapter. There's no way uh, a highly anticipated party goes ahead without some kind of some kind of interruption, right? Yeah, and, and, and it, you know, it starts almost immediately, Ian, as you say. The word starts passing on the, you know, the crews of the different ships of the squadron. No liberty, no shore leave past sunset in Sierra Leone. Doctors fucking orders, they say. And, and this is confirmed you know, by the captains, ultimately by the Commodore himself. And there are a number of very strongly expressed sentiments about the doctors mm. passed <laughs> among the men. And as these are all happening, Stephen's down below in the cabin with Jack and Huel. Stephen's sewing up Huel's arm. Huel's making his informal report about the raids on Sherbera, Magna, and Lois to Jack. And there had been no guard, he says, no resistance in Sherbera. They were taken by complete surprise. And almost immediately, the anchor watch was bundled below under hatches, told they'd be blown to pieces if they gave any resistance. And so, you know, they took all the schooners this way. Um, there was one ship that was, you know, already underway when they got there. They met a little resistance there, and that's where Huel had gotten this slash on her arm. But they took her easily as well. And their next two stops were much the same. But Huel happily reports that they were fired upon there. And the text tells us that Jack was also glad to hear it, since yeah. any ship firing upon a man of war is guilty of piracy. 
and forfeit regardless of its colors or nation. So we've got this whole thing going on. For some ships, slaving is illegal. For others, it's not illegal. Who's your master? What flag are you flying under? If you're Portuguese, are you you know, north of the line, south of the line? All this stuff. And so Jack says to Huel, what about the captured vessel's papers? He wanted to make sure that you know, there's also big fines if you interfere with a with an actual legal slaver. So uh, Hill says he remembered the governor's words about not letting a legal quibble get in the way of what is obviously right. So he reports that the papers are mostly destroyed or lost overboard, with the exception of a few Portuguese captains manifest, save for show, since they aren't protected north of the line. So mm. he's kind of very conveniently going, mm, papers? Yeah, sorry. Gosh, we lost all those in the fighting, which uh, <laughs> you know, didn't happen. And he said he'd clap the pirates straight into irons without regard to papers. So the ships that fired on us, doesn't matter. We're all good. And Huell says he also recalled something that somebody in government house had said, maybe a member of the vice admiralty court, he can't quite remember, that a man who had no papers whose ship had no papers, and who could not certainly identify the person who arrested him was in a hopeless state. He could not make out any kind of case at all, even with the best of counsel, and even if some foolish legal clause was in his favor. And, you know, Jack nods and smiles and turns to Stephen and says, you know, I believe that's also your view, doctor. I'm kind of wondering if, if, if Stephen hadn't put these words in the mouth of somebody for, for everybody. So our favorite intelligence agent <laughs> in pursuit of a noble goal going, oh, by the way, just, just so we clean this thing up correctly. Oh, it's very good. It's very good. So it couldn't have gone better by the sound of it. I, it's unfortunate for Hewell that he's got this wound that he's getting sewn up. But this is something like a really auspicious start to the practical side of this anti-slavery um, tour here. Stephen finishes up sewing the arm and gives some instructions to Huel about care, about diet. He grabs Jack's best super fine cambric neckcloth. This is quite some finery for Stephen here. Just been ironed by Killick and uses it as a sling. <laughs> so this is going to go, you know, it's all been frilled and pleated and it's beautiful and it's white and it's starched and it's going to get bloodstained. Uh, he asks Huel then to recommend a reliable middle-aged crewman, one who he says would be ni- given neither to whimsies nor to drink, to show him the way to go in Freetown, which he must shortly visit after sundown. And he asks the Commodore for a suitable conveyance. Now, this is the point at which things start to come unstuck for Stephen here. My dear doctor, said Jack, I shall allow you no such thing, nor will Captain Pullings or Mr. Harding or anyone else that loves you. Was you to be seen going ashore within half an hour of forbidding the same indulgent to the entire ship's company, you would be the most hated man in the squadron. I do not say they would offer much in the way of physical violence, but their affection would be killed, stone dead. And Huell says, well, I've, I've got just the man, in terms of a local guide, I've got just the man coming aboard in the morning, a fellow that he refers to as John Square, which sounds like a very, uh, very well-chosen name for the kind of guide that Stephen might need here. Square, as he comes on board, is indeed very much the native. We hear about he's got these blue lines across his forehead. He's got a broader line going from ear to ear. He has filed incisors. And Stephen thinks this isn't any more bizarre in the context of an African than um, a ruffled shirt on a European. And he agrees, John Square does, to take Stephen ashore in his canoe and show him whatever he wants. 
Stephen asks about the inland animals, and Square says, well, my uncle used to live far up river, had been taken hunting, had seen all manner of creatures, and Square had used his knowledge to help a Dutch naturalist visit in the area to see some snakes and lots of other animals. The payment that Square had got from the naturalist had allowed Square to buy his first wife, which is a nice little echo back to an episode of Killix buying a wife. What was it back in about the first three books? This Dutch guy had also taught London English to John Square, and he'd learned, therefore, the corresponding names of all the animals. So Square is going to be a very, very well-set-up guy to guide Stephen ashore. But I think there's mm, something that Stephen perhaps ought to take notice of. He's already been warned by Jack that he gets to look like a bit of a hypocrite if he takes himself ashore, having banned shore leave. And now we get another little bit of threat for Stephen here. Stephen hopes, he says, that this Dutch naturalist had written a book. Square says, Mr. Klopstock, sir, no book, shaking his head. And then he says, Mr. Klopstock, he dead. And Square acts out, we can only imagine how, acts out the death of somebody succumbing to yellow fever. So, first of all, a little bit of a warning about what might await a European travelling ashore here. But second of all, like, Mr. Klopstock, he dead. That's going to ring a bell from somewhere. Well, it, it does. And this is, and, and you know, I, I, I've got to turn to Anthony Gary Brown and the, the Patrick O'Brien muster book. It was, it was weird because I couldn't find a Klopstock, but this phrase, you know, rings familiar. And sure enough, you know, this is... Uh, Brown believes, I, I agree, that this is O'Brien paying tribute to Joseph Conrad and his line in The Heart of Darkness, Mr. Kurtz, he dead. Um, mm. And in, you know, in The Heart of Darkness, now we know it as, as kind of a, a little bit of a Vietnam tale from the movie, but The Heart of Darkness in the original book, Kurtz is in Africa. And it's clear in Conrad's story of Africa, like in this story, that, you know, one of the main points is there's a little difference between, if you will, the civilized people, I'm, I'm using air quotes, and the mm -hmm. savages, again, air quotes again. And this same line, uh, Mr. Kurtz, he dead, T.S. Eliot uses that quote uh, from Conrad at the beginning of his poem, The Hollow Men, you know, one oh, that has fuddled wow. people for, for ages. And that's really uh, impactful. And right after this quote, at the beginning of The Hollow Men, there's a reference to Guy Fawkes Night, immediately the same night that Jack referenced, you know, just a few paragraphs earlier. So I think I think it's not at all unintentional on the part yeah. of O'Brien and a, and a beautiful, fabulous Easter egg for, oh, for this novel, this chapter. Brilliant. So Stephen asked to see a bit of the town and then to be taken to see a particular money changer. And as they walk along, Square tells Stephen about another naturalist that he knew as a boy, Mr. Afsalius, a Swedish botanist who spoke English. But even though he had been there for years in country, he didn't publish a book either because the French burnt down his house and his collections, his specimens and his papers when they took the town in 1794. And again, this is another, this is an actual reference, not a Klopstock, yeah. but, uh, you know, Adam Afsalius. Uh, was a pupil of Linnaeus and a botanist to the Sierra Leone Company from 1792 to 1796. Mm -hmm. He did extensive collections there. And as Square says, he did lose much of his collection in 1794. But even though he didn't publish a book ever, you know, under his own name, a lot of his botanical observations, especially, were published in many learned journals. Well, 
Square and Stephen walk through the market. They're looking at all the fruits and vegetables, the fish and oysters. And Square is pointing out people from different African tribes, showing how by the, you know, the hue of their color, by their dress, by the way they're actually adorned, if you will, like squares differently. He's pointing out the tribes and the language and everything. And he's telling Stephen that people from all the nations that were ever sold into slavery live here, including the Nova Scotia Blacks, saying, you know, Stephen, you, you know all about those. And Stephen says, no, actually, I don't. And Square tells him that slaves from America who fought on the king's side in the Revolutionary War were moved to Nova Scotia kind of to protect them after the war ended. And Square says the ones who lived through all the snow for 20 years came to Freetown. <laughs> I, wow. I get all of that. <laughs> yeah, man, what a life. What a life that yeah. must have been. Right. Uh, now John Square takes Stephen to see Mr. Homusios, a Greek money changer. I, I, I think we've had this before, that money changers and local merchants are kind of Stephen's way in to the local intelligence community. Stephen greets this guy, Humusios, in French, as the text says, had been agreed long since. So this is not just a casual, can you cash me a check kind of an encounter here. Uh, he says, I have a letter of change. And as Humusios greets Stephen, he reads the letter and says, I've never had that amount of money carried to the market. So he sends for the clerk to mind the stall and escorts Stephen away into his beautiful Arab home. And now the real intelligence exchange can happen between these two guys. Humusios asks Stephen for identification. Stephen does this symbol involving six pennies and moving the placement of the pennies, keeping them in contact, forming a circle. It's the secret sign that says to Humusios, Stephen is who he's been expecting. And Humusios reaches under his shirt and gives Stephen 50 guineas and says that his chief had told him that he would have the honor of receiving messages for Stephen from time to time. And Rest assured, just like the money safe in my bosom, he says, the messages will be safe there as well. Okay, so Stephen, priority number one, can you help me find some coca leaves from Peru? No problem, says Hermusios. We know where this is headed, right? It's going to take me about a month to six weeks by the time I order them. So Stephen places his uh, his, his drugs order <laughs> uh, and leaves after a cup of coffee thinking, this is much more pleasant than some of the dubious semi-criminal characters he often has to meet yeah I I imagine meeting a drug dealer being more <laughs> being more easygoing than some of the people you regularly have to meet however he says there's lots of loose talk in embassies and consulates so a parallel means of communication is always a necessary evil so happy times for Stephen because he's discovered a source of coca leaves and he's getting back in touch here with john square goes back and finds john square and says if you'll bring your canoe and sail off on the Bellona for the next few weeks, you could show me the plants and the birds and the vegetables. Uh, he says, I'll ask Captain Pullings to put you up on the books as a supernumerary, that is to say, not part of the regular crew, and that'll get him some seaman's wages. And Square is very happy with this idea. Stephen says, well, you know, if my rounds today finish early, we could even start with the swamp behind the town later and that evening, and then the lofty hills beyond in the following days. And another little soft beat of this drum beat of danger for Stephen, I think, as he's going to go ashore here. Anyhow, Pullings is true to Stephen's promises here. He puts Square on the payroll, has him stow his canoe inside the jolly boat. And now we learn that the men are much happier because they're going to be going ashore before sunset. Everyone appears to have forgiven Stephen for 
perhaps over-controlling the movement of people ashore. And Stephen takes a little bit longer in the sick berth than he'd hoped for, and here's Jack being piped aboard as Commodore, just as he, Stephen, is getting ready to leave to view the swamp. So let's see what Jack has to say. Well, Jack tells Stephen all about the governor's excellent dinner with all the captains. And but Jack says, you know, with his age, he does feel the heat much more. But he says, you know, you must not be, Stephen, because you've got a coat on. Stephen says, you know, I don't mind the heat at all, but I do feel the dampness. And he adds, but you portly subjects, you know, feel the heat more than we spare men. So, you know, never, never misses an opportunity to poke at Jack, I think, a little bit. But Stephen says, but don't worry, it's going to be the dry season soon. And Stephen says, you know, the reason I'm wearing my coat is because I'm going to view the swamps behind the town. And I don't want to be exposed to the falling damps. And, and Jack's a little concerned. He says, you know, he remembers Stephen's order about nobody going ashore after sunset and says that Stephen never told them why. And Jack says it couldn't be the falling damps because there's no falling damps in taverns or body houses where all the sailors on leave go by instinct. And then Jack adds, the text says, like the heart to the water brook. Huh. And, I, you know, I, I was like, wait, the heart, H-A-R-T to the water brook. This sounds familiar, but I'm, I'm, I, I just had to reel back just a minute here. And this is the opening of Psalm 42. Now, wow. many of our listeners may have heard Psalm 42 set to music. Heart here means uh, an adult male deer. You may recognize this psalm phrase better from the new international version. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. And, and so this, uh, you know, as I say, it's been set to music in many religious musical settings over the years. One of the most recent was by the British composer Judith Weir, who yeah. set the first seven verses of the psalm to music for the state funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Her composition is called Like the Heart, just as Jack would have said. But I suspect she was not familiar with Commodore Aubrey's use of the line, talking about semen and body houses and yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like the heart. Though it would have bit put a smile on my face to think that she did know about Jack's comments as well as her own take on the psalm, because... I do believe in amazing grace. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, the conversation gets even better. Stephen reports to Jack that the reasons he doesn't want people going ashore is because of, because of what? Because of the miasmata, he says. And Jack asks, in a spirit of mere inquiry, are they like miasmas? Much the same, I do assure you, Jack, says Stephen, and they are at their worst after sunset. And a little chortle here. First of all, because anyone who, like Brian, has a bit of knowledge of Greek grammar will spot that this is a pure misunderstanding on Jack's part. Whatever Stephen meant by miasma, and we'll come to that in a second, miasma is a singular Greek noun that originally meant defilement or pollution. And as all of you Greek scholars know, the plural form of a Greek noun ending in A like this, is formed by adding the A-T-A, the utter suffix. So miasmata is merely the plural form of miasma and Stephen's teasing Jack for his use of the anglicized plural miasmas. And that's the kind of joke that you love, right? It takes you two and a half minutes to explain. But if you get it, you get it in like one second. Anyway, O'Brien, you're killing us with this Greek grammar humor here. But then let's dig into what miasma theory is. It, it's an abandoned medical theory that held that diseases, diseases like 
cholera, chlamydia, the Black Death, maybe even yellow fever, were caused by a miasma, a form of bad air, also known as night air. And, and by the way, malaria means nothing more or less than bad air. And so this idea held that epidemics were caused by miasma, by some kind of pollution in the air emanating, they thought in particular, from rotting organic matter. So Stephen's thinking it's the miasma. Now, miasma theory was advanced by Hippocrates in the 4th century BC. It was still part of the scholarship of physicians at the time that Stephen was educated. It was eventually abandoned by scientists and physicians after 1880, replaced by the germ theory of disease. Specific germs meaning bacteria and viruses and fungi, not miasma, are now known to be the true cause of disease. So Stephen's trading on some ancient, ancient knowledge here in his rationalization to himself of what is or isn't dangerous as he goes visiting the swamps. Now, it's easy to see that Actions taken to reduce miasma, reducing foul air, actions like ventilating sick bays, which is important to Stephen, actions like clearing up rotting garbage, and also, by the way, avoiding mosquito-infested swamps. All of those preventive measures might be done in the name of avoiding miasmata, but also, by the way, have the effect of reducing transmission of germs. So what changes the one thing that you suppose it changes actually has an effect someplace else. It's really tough. It's really tough being an experimental scientist. It's really tough being a post-enlightenment rationalist telling yourself that it's safe to wander around a mosquito-infested swamp in West Africa at sunset. <laughs> I just love that. Thank you, Ian. There. Well, having heard Stephen's explanation for the rule not to go ashore, Jack turns to the stern window, notes the position of the sun, and tells Stephen... Fair is fair, you know. You cannot deny all hands liberty and then go rioting among the owls and the nightbirds yourself. And, and Jack finally <laughs> persuades Stephen that there's no inherent understood exceptions or special cases to this rule. And, you know, Stephen kind of says, ah, well, I wouldn't have seen much tonight anyways. I'll just go tomorrow. And Jack says, well, I'm sorry to tell you that as far as your great dismal swamp is concerned, there is no tomorrow. <laughs> so a little philosophical take on the journey, but mm. in, in real time, he's saying, you know, we're leaving on the turn of the tide because we've got to get to the other slavers before wind of what's happened here reaches them. And, you know, the governor's told Jack about several of them soon due to complete their cargoes. And if they leave immediately, they may catch them in the act of doing so. So as always, there's not a moment to lose. Ah, familiar territory here. <laughs> so Stephen can't help but agree, but he's clearly a bit mad with himself for not having left some kind of proviso or caveat in his blanket statement that he'd made about no shore leave. He's mad at himself for not having left some kind of exception, as he calls it, for the common good. Now, Mike, this looks like another bit of self-deception for Stephen here. We all know with our post-19th century view of infections and yellow fever and germs and swamps, we all know the risk that he's exposing himself to here. But if he would just stop for a minute with his self-rationalization, he might have spared himself from some significant personal risk. But all this is still to come. He's railing against all the circumstances that are getting in the way of his trip. If only, Mike, if only he knew. Yeah, for sure. Well... He takes a turn on deck 
and is comforted by a sight of a large school of flying fishes skimming well above the surface. He's watching these frigate birds come in and snapping them up in the fading light and, you know, just admires their breathtaking speed of these birds. And he's thinking about Square's mention of the Phillips Island River that, you know, where they're headed now, Phillips Island. And it's a clear walking path. It's, you know, will be great for viewing chimpanzees that they're elephants further off, uh, bobobs, and 14 different kinds of bats, Square promises, some with huge monstrous faces, and perhaps even a potto. And he <sighs> hears the call to weigh anchor, realizes they're going to be sailors you know, running all over this, and he ducks out of the way down to the cabin. <laughs> Well, I'm really excited to hear about the possibility of the potentiality of the merest, slightest chance of a potter. And I think Stephen is too. Jack says he's really sorry to have dashed Stephen's spirits about visiting the field swamp. And Stephen tells him, it's fine. I've been thinking about the delights of the Phillips Island River, which according to Tom Horn's website is a, is a fictitious island river. And he's also been thinking about the possibility of a potto, and that's returned what he describes as his own native cheerfulness. And Jack takes the bait here. He says, okay, tell me what's a potto. And Stephen replies with a little bit of description for all of us who might need some persuading to wean ourselves off of sloth um, love here. It is, he said, a little furry creature that sleeps all day, curled up in a ball with its head between its legs, and then walks about very, very slowly all night, high in the trees, slowly eating leaves and creeping up on birds as they roost and eating them too. It has immense eyes, which is but reasonable. Some call it the sluggard, some the slow lemur, some the sloth, quite erroneously, for the two have nothing in common, apart from their modest demeanour, their inoffensive lives. The potto is the most interesting of the primates from the anatomical point of view. So you may be thinking like us, why then all of the sloth love in Patrick O'Brien and in, in the fandom and so little Potto attention? And we think that's a very, very fair question. Maybe, Mike, Pottos being primates are a little bit too much like us, sometimes deadly as well. I'm not sure I completely empathize with creeping up on birds in the dead of night and eating them. But anyhow, we, we can post some pictures and maybe some uh, some video imagery of pottos and let's see if we can get pottos trending. Nice, nice. Well, speaking of deadly primates, Stephen tells Jack, Addinson saw and dissected the potto and I fairly long to have the same happiness. And Jack confuses the name that he hears with a sea captain, Adamson of the Thetis. Um, huh. and, and we couldn't find an Adamson who captained the Thetis, but we have a lot of references to the Thetis in the canon, perhaps because it's the one Thomas Cochran served on as a midshipman under his uncle, Captain Alexander Cochran. Well, Stephen corrects, it's not Adamson, it's Adenson. And he tells Jack about meeting Adenson while he was a youth in Paris. He gives him a, a history of his life, his discoveries, his book on Africa, and it's fauna and flora. It, it, he tells Jack, this is my sole reference on the continent. And he goes in in great detail here. Well, while Stephen is talking, Jack is fiddling with his fiddle. Sorry, ah, I just couldn't help it. <laughs> you know, and he's, he's restrung his violin. He's working with the D string. And Stephen goes on. He's describing this incredible collection of Addison's books. 
and his great unpublished work of 150 volumes, 40,000 drawings, 30,000 species, you know, all of which he continued to work on in poverty, even though it was never published and, and not going to be published, saying that Addison was happy for the admiration he had from men such as Jusu and from the Institute. And Jack replies, I'm sure he was. And then observes that the ship is underway <laughs> here. And a, a little hint that we're going to come back to here, that Jack's attention was not completely gripped by this story of Adanson. Um, Je suis, by the way, a, a real person from a family of distinguished French botanists, a member of the, the Royal Garden, the Jardin de Roi, um, had developed his own kind of competing with Linnaeus system of plant classification. It replaced Linnaeus's plant classification, actually, in 1774. Uh, and this guy, Adanson, was a real person as well and really had all these many, many, many volumes. No wonder he was delighted to have been admired by Jussieu, a fellow botanist who had, had done his own work on classification. Now, Mike, maybe there's more to the mention of Adanson than just admiration for his role in science and taxonomy. You know, I, I, I can't help but wonder in exactly that thing. I mean, you know, here's Addison who has all his work replaced by Linnaeus. And yeah. as you say, you know, so he, he really admires somebody just like Jusso who admires his work, but, yeah. you know, and Jusso's work, you know, replaces part of Linnaeus's classification system. And, and I couldn't help but wondering if this might have been a little bit of an O'Brien tribute to Cochrane. You know, mm. Cochrane, who like Addison accomplished so much, but got derailed, you know, in, in what I'm sure he imagined to be his Royal Navy career. As we know, you know, he had his own trial, like the one that Jack had, you know, he, he was uh, later reinstated like Jack was. And he did die Admiral of the Red and, and had the honorary title, like some of his earlier relatives, Rear Admiral of the United Kingdom. But, you know, didn't it didn't go the way he thought. But then I wondered, too. Maybe this is O'Brien thinking of himself, you know, yeah. how long he had been writing at, at some point, you know, far into it, how little perhaps he had to show for it. The fact that he was being published in the U.S., stopped being published in the U.S., and may have, you know, ended up kind of the same way as, as Addison, as a little bit yeah. of Cochran, you know, not reaching the heights that perhaps he thought one day he would reach. But knowing that he still would have been happy living on the coast with Mary doing what he loved and admired by people that he admired, you know, that he didn't need necessarily the million dollar U.S. publishing deals to be happy in life. So oh. I, I don't know. Maybe this is my it's my pure personal speculation or perhaps transference. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Even if it's not real, I love the idea that, uh, that O'Brien is living a little bit of vicarious life through some of the characters that he's writing about here. Anyhow, Jack had drawn a bit of a premature halt to this discussion about Adanson. And they're watching the ships of the squadron falling in behind the Bellona. And meanwhile, Jack is tuning his fiddle. And I'm happy with this because we remember just a few chapters ago, Jack couldn't bring himself to play in any music. But now it seems like he might have repaired things a little bit with Sophie. Music is on the agenda again. They talk about pitch about the tuning of the violin strings and jack demonstrates what some people think an a should sound like i cannot bear it he says i hate to think that our grandfathers should be such flats ho 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 well done jack after a moment he chuckled reflecting upon the double meaning of the word and said that was pretty good Stephen. don't you think such flats 
You smoked it, of course. But can you think of Corelli playing in that moaning small beer and water kind of wine? Now, it, it is funny. Obviously, flat meaning lower in pitch, sharp meaning higher in pitch. He thinks that the A string is a little bit flat. And I'm going to go, yeah, okay, but there was no such thing as standard pitch at least until at least the late 19th century. And even into the early 20th century, there was no such thing as one tuning fork, one pitch that all orchestras tuned to. So Dresden pitch was different from Paris pitch was different from London pitch. And in Corelli's time, even more so, the idea of standard pitch would have been probably actually even flatter than in Jack and Stephen's time because people were kind of protecting the structure and the string tension of, of older violins. But anyhow, it's a nice thing to attribute to Jack, the idea that he's got good pitch, even perfect pitch. I think he's, he's allowed to flex it a little bit. Stephen has already had that chance earlier on in the book when he talked about him reading the Haydn Funeral Symphony score and hearing it in his head. So they've, they've both awarded themselves this great musical talent, even though I'm not 100% sure about whether it can relate to Corelli. Now, Jack's tone changes as he starts talking about him being tantamount to a flag officer. Mike, this is a really great little reflection on, actually, despite the loneliness of command, there are some things that are okay about his situation right now. He talks about infinitely solitary care and toil, and he says, if your expedition don't answer the expectation of a parcel of coves that have never been to sea in their lives, you're flogged to death and buried at the crossroads with a stake through your heart. But, here we get to it now, it has its compensations. And this is a really nice moment of a little bit of bucolic smugness on the part of Jack Aubrey, the Commodore here. He says, there is Tom and everybody else aboard, everybody in all his majesty's ships and vessels under my command, skipping about, getting wet. Oh, look how it's coming down now. Hauling aft, tallying belay, laying aloft, coiling down. Bees ain't in it. While we sit here like fine gentlemen. <laughs> Come on, she's on an even keel now. Let me call for lights, fetch your cello, and we'll have a tune. Uh, th th this is lovely, isn't it? This is the, the older, happier, wiser Jack. Older, happier, and wiser probably than the last time he was a Commodore, several books ago. And my God, nice to think that he's learned from the example of the Admiral that he served under in the Mauritius campaign. And after all of the speculation and worry and anxiety and even trepidation in the early chapters, it's nice to get a bit of good old-fashioned, good fellowship and, and good humor between Jack and Stephen here. In the spirit of that good humor, you know, I, I think we should all, you know, just take a break, take a momentary pause. And we'll be right back after we've tuned our violin strings. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. So welcome back. We hope that your A is at exactly 440 hertz for concert pitch. Uh, meanwhile, we've got some parish notices for you. We didn't point it out, but a couple of weeks ago was not only our 150th episode, but also our 100th episode featuring the editing skills of Sam Luce. So thank you, Sam, for being such a great friend of the show. Thank you for all your work over 100 episodes now, keeping us sounding clean and balanced and organized to the extent that we can. Uh, and thank you also to all the Patreon supporters whose contributions make it possible for us to work with Sam. So congrats on your century, Sam. 
And while we're on, Mike, let's say thank you as well to our subscribers on YouTube. Just in the last week or two, we passed the milestone of 1,000 subscribers on YouTube. So thank you to all of you. If you're not already a subscriber and you're on YouTube, don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button. A glass of wine in any case with all of you. Brilliant. Boy, uh, thanks, Sam. Thank you, YouTube. Thank you, listeners everywhere here. Yeah. Well, it's 4.30 a.m. and Stephen's assistant wakes him up to come see a foretopman who's in the sick berth. Now, he, he came there with a cracked fibula, but now he's on the point of bursting, filled with urine because of, he says, a common calculus. Calculus here meaning a hard mineral mass, you know, probably a kidney stone here. We, we know that, but Jack Aubrey doesn't, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, as we'll find out too true. The sailor, Abel Black, he's embarrassed at his present condition and he's embarrassed at what's led up to this. You know, he, he didn't want to mention it to the unknown sailors lying next to him for quite some time. He didn't want to say anything too early in the day. He didn't want to bother the doctors in the night watches. And now it's beyond the point here. Luckily, Stephen knows the condition well. It's a common seaman's malady. And he's, the text says, used to dealing with sailors' wonderfully uneven and complex forms of delicacy. Now, hmm. I, I couldn't help but pause there, Ian, and say, now show me another nautical fiction book that uses a phrase like that. I just, oh, I no. just love this. <laughs> well, Stephen handles the situation for now and returns to bed but, but he can't go back to sleep because just as he's swinging easily in his cot, this inner voice comes to him and it says, Matron, Matron, you'd already bored poor Jack Aubrey cruelly with your tedious account of Michael Addison years ago, prating away in the same earnest, even enthusiastic, moral, improving fashion for half an hour on end. And he's sitting there smiling and nodding politely saying, oh, indeed, and heavens above. Oh, for shame. You may well blush, but blushing does no good. It's mere remorse of conscience. <laughs> Stephen can't remember when or where he did this. We do. It was in Reverse of the Metal, Chapter 3. <laughs> but he's horrified remembering his zealous voice going on and on and Jack's civil replies. And he wonders, you know, how often do I do this? Is this just a habit? Is this advancing age? And then he thinks of Jack and he says to himself, he is a dear, well-bred man, the creature, but will my heart ever forgive him this moral advantage? <laughs> I, I love it. I love it for Stephen, and I love it for maybe another little bit of self-doubt or confession on the part of Patrick O'Brien. You know, on, on the one hand, oh, I beat my breast because I was a bore, but on the other hand, I'm going I'm to stay smug about it. <laughs> oh, great. Well... Despite all of this um, moral reckoning going on in his conscience here, Stephen finally falls asleep. Remember that he's still short of coca leaves, so that probably explains it. When he wakes up, he washes and shaves with particular care to dispel the still vivid memory of this embarrassing um, episode with him in front of Jack here. And on deck, he sees that they're out of sight of land. He can see no smaller vessels, none of the kind of hangers-on of the squadron, just the two-deckers and the frigates. And he hears the midshipman report the reading of the log, and he can smell coffee, toast, bacon, and perhaps flying fish freshly fried. He heads for the cabin, meaning to pass on the report that he's heard from the midshipman, trying to steal himself to, be, to play the nautical man here, to give him some credit with Jack, perhaps. But we learn greed and affection overcame him, and he cried, Good morning, Jack. God and Mary be with you. 
And would that be flying fish freshly fried at all? <laughs> and great job. You try saying flying fish freshly fried three times fast and have fun with it. I'll just, I'm just going to wipe this bit off the microphone here, Mike. Why don't you pick it up for a second? <laughs> well, well, Jack serves Stephen some fish. And, and Stephen notes there's no land or smaller vessels in sight, asking if perhaps the ships lost their way in the dark. And he says, you know, that's, that's probably very probable. And, and I think to myself, there, there goes all of the countenance that Stephen hoped to give himself by reporting the pace of the ship and the, and the current right. when he came in. Right. And, and Jack is, is gentle, uh, I probably teasing, but I don't think Stephen notices it. Jack says, you know, he's afraid so, you know, meaning he, he's, he's afraid they, you know, they have lost them. <laughs> but, but he's sure at least one of them had a compass aboard. And, and if that compass had broken, they could have followed the Bologna's light, the three splendid green lanterns behind, which Stephen's probably seen. And he's sure somebody must have lit those lanterns last night. So all, all of this going on and on, a nice way to say, no, Stephen, they probably didn't get lost. No. <laughs> After Killick serves the coffee, Jack says that the breeze shifted in the middle watch and the brigs and the schooners, you know, which can keep closer to the wind, are now sailing along the coast for Phillips Island with the Laurel and the Camilla a little further behind while the rest of the squadron, the, the, the group that Stephen saw, head southwest to go about later and then hit the coast beyond the island to snap up anything that's trying to escape or to help if they have trouble in the harbor. Yeah. And Stephen tries to buy back a little bit of moral advantage for himself here. He says that he remembers last night that he'd been chatting to Jack about Adamson. And he says, there's nothing more profoundly boring, more deeply saddening than a repeated tale. And Jack says, but Jack, no doubt, remembering at least 80% of what gets said over most, uh, most naval dinner tables is probably repeated. Jack says that may be true in general, but in this case, he was so taken up with his D-string that he thought Stephen might have found his inattention uncivil. And then asks if Stephen would like to hear the plan that he and Huell have decided upon. And I love that really gentle diplomatic turn of the conversation back to some uh, uh, you know, moral equivalence for both of them here. Everyone agrees, as we go through this plan here, that the majority of what they have to do now is an inshore task, that going close inshore is no place for the ships of the line or the frigates, even if they're as fast and as weatherly as a surprise is. The bigger ships, says Jack, are good for staying far out to sea and to windward of likely routes of escape, particularly towards Havana and staying out of sight of the shore. And if you know anything about the way the chase of the French fleet is going to go, being across the route to Havana is going to be helpful, but we'll come back to that later. After Phillips Island, he says, he's going to station the two-deckers and the Thames well out to sea, but within signaling distance of one another, and also within signaling distance of smaller craft in between them and the shore. And as this big kind of stretched out kind of surveillance convoy, they're going to work along the coast, trying to stay ahead of the news that the squadron is here, moving all of them from Cape Palmas in towards the Bight of Benin. And Stephen picks up on this name of this particular sea area, the Bight of Benin, and chants, beware and take care of the Bight of Benin. There's one comes out for 40 goes in. And I, I, It's funny, I didn't know of this rhyme before I read it in Patrick O'Brien, but as soon as I read it, I'm going, oh yeah, that's the rhyme about the Bight of Benin. It just kind of rolls off the tongue so much that it must have been commonplace. 
Now, Jack is very upset with this. He says this is a foolish, unlucky old song, especially one to sing aboard a ship that is actually headed into the Bight of Benin. He should know better, he says, after all your years at sea. And Stephen apologises profusely, promises not to sing it again. Jack is still not satisfied with the apology, saying he's not at all superstitious. Yeah, right, Jack, you're not at all superstitious. But everyone, he says, everyone who knows anything about the sea knows it's a song sung in ships that have come out of the bite by way of making game of those that are going in. Do not sing it again until we are homeward bound, I beg. It might bring bad luck, and it is certain to upset the hands. And maybe Stephen is reminded as well of his false step with the shore leave thing earlier on. So he repeats his apology and says, I won't sing it again, but do tell me some more about this bite. What's so terrible, he says. Are there sirens or terrible reefs? So what what can we learn, Mike, about the bite of Benin? Well, I was fascinated by the same thing. You know, I thought, well, that just rolls right off the tongue. I can sort of see Stephen, you know, kind of sing-songing it there. And and I, I had no idea about it. A bite, as it turns out, is a concave bend or curvature in, in a coastline, a river, or another geographical feature, such, you know, as a cliff. And a bite also means an open bay formed by such this this curvature. Bites are typically broad, open, and shallow as opposed to sounds, a sound which is much deeper. So historically, in, in the time of square rig vessels, a bite could be sailed into and or out of in a single tack and difference oh, between a bite and a okay. sound or something. So it's like, yeah, yeah. okay. Now, this particular bite, the Bite of Benin, it's in the Gulf of Guinea. Again, Canonade.net is so helpful here. Its name, as it turns out, does not come from the modern country of Benin, which is, you know, somewhat close by, but from the historical kingdom of Benin, which is was in what is now southern Nigeria. So it makes sense that the Bight of Benin is there. The Bight Shore and region are all part of what's known as the Slave Coast. You know, it makes perfect sense here. And the rhyme Stephen quotes actually comes from an old sea song about the high numbers of deaths related to malaria and other tropical diseases in this area. There are reports that the Royal Navy's West Africa squadron lost hundreds, if not thousands of lives to tropical diseases all the way from 1807 through the 1890s patrolling this area. And any of our Harry Flashman fans out there might recognize, you know, Stephen's quote, again, this little sing-song thing, slightly altered, Coming in the the George McDonald Fraser book, Flash for Freedom, out of the mouth of then Congressman Abraham Lincoln. So here, 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 here we go. Well, I, I have a feeling that one day somebody somewhere is going to put up a uh, um, Flashman versus Aubrey debate. Maybe we should have that online sometime soon. But uh, for all you George McDonald Fraser fans, here's a little intersection between the two sets of stories. In answer to Stephen's questions about the bite, Jack sketches out the plan of the surrounding area, shows Stephen their course along past the great slave markets, pointing out that at the bite of Benin and at the bite of Biafra further on, the winds and the currents are really troublesome and the fever, he says, is very bad. There are some islands that the larger ships will pass and that will have to stand farther off. The smaller ships, the Ringle and the Active, he says, will ply inshore and we'll be reporting to Camilla or Laurel, who will signal in turn back to the pennant. He says he's changing the topmasts aboard the Camilla and the Laurel so that they no longer look like men of war, but they look like common merchantmen. And this is standard Jack Aubrey playbook from way back in the first books of the canon. 
Stephen clarifies, and you, you could tell what he might have in his mind here. So he's like, so you're telling me now that the Bellona won't actually see the coast for the entire expedition. And Jack says, well, if you go right up to the top masts, to the top gallant cross trees, you might see glimpses of mountains from time to time. And he realizes slightly too late that Stephen is grieving. He says, grieving his potto. He says, don't worry, you'll have a good run ashore at Phillips Island. You can occasionally go in with the Ringle or exchange with the surgeon of one of the smaller boats. Stephen says what lots of us might say in the same situation. Of course, he quotes Macbeth. He says, they have tied me to a stake. I cannot fly, but bear-like, I must fight the course, and gives a creditable smile. A really nice quote there. Act five, scene seven of Macbeth. Macbeth feels the, the, the binds of fate containing him, but he must fight for his life until the bitter end. Stephen, perhaps a little less pessimistic than Macbeth, a little more spoiled, but who knows? He says, do you know what? It's not so bad. This is not the Stephen who was cheated out of the Galapagos trip, right? He's a very, very chilled Stephen. This is not such a dreadful course. It's just that I was so extravagantly indulged in the East Indies and New Holland and Peru. He says he'll have one more cup of coffee before he has to attend to his calculus. And Mike, there's a, there's a great turn in the conversation here. We know, because we looked it up, that calculus means a stone. Jack, of course, is a couple of steps behind us here. So, you have suddenly taken to the calculus, cried Jack. How very glad I am, amazed, quite stunned, by just calculus. I take it you mean differential rather than infinitesimal, if I can be of any help. You are very good, my dear, said Stephen, putting down his cup and rising. But I mean the vesicle calculus no more, what is commonly known as a stone in the bladder, the utmost reach of my mathematics. So, <laughs> classic Jack, classic Stephen, classic O'Brien, misunderstanding, science and maths two different signs of a similar coin. Now, Jack is feeling oddly kind of dashed and deflated by this. He tells Stephen, don't forget, it's Sunday, just as Stephen walks away. And uh, why might we care so much about it being Sunday? It's interesting. O'Brien tells us there's little chance that Stephen would forget that it's Sunday since Killick has hidden his best wig, his second best coat and breeches, the Loblolly boy, and both of his assistants separately tactfully remind Stephen or, you know, ask him, do, do, do you remember that it's Sunday? And Stephen's indignant. <laughs> Everyone thinks, he says, he's a brute beast, unable to tell good from evil or Sunday from the rest of the week. But his indignation's a little bit tempered when he remembered that, oh yeah, you know, when I got up, I, I really wasn't aware it was Sunday and and I happened to shave closely by chance here. So nevertheless, <laughs> when it comes time for inspection, as Sundays are time for, he and his sick birth crew are present, sober, and properly dressed, and everything's in order when Captain Pullings and Lieutenant Harding come through to inspect them. Ah, huh. After inspection, Stephen watches close to 100 Royal Marines drawn up exactly. He's watching from the poop, and, and then he looks beyond them to all the seamen that are there lined up. And then he joins the Catholics, uh, which O'Brien describes as a group of all possible origins and colors. You know, They've joined together to recite St. Bridget's rosary under the forecastle while the Anglicans hold church other, a further order on the ship there. Stephen catches up with Tom Pullings afterwards and asks if Tom survived his ordeal. You know, as Captain Tom had just read one of South's shorter sermons during church. And Tom replies, 
I have, sir. It comes a little easier, as you said, but but sometimes I wish we were just a pack of wicked heathens. Lord, I could do with my dinner and a drink. <laughs> I, 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 I love this, you know. I, I remember first times in the pulpit, right? I'm, I'm with you, Tom, here. And I love that O'Brien says, you know, he just finished one of South's sermons because Robert South, a pastor from earlier, uh, was one of the most famous preachers of his time. And, and his sermons would be ideally suited for Tom Pullings. He was renowned for his engaging humor and his biting wit from the pulpit. Oh, wow. <laughs> I can uh, I can certainly credit Tom Pullings with engaging humor. I don't think he's the he's the biting wit kind of a guy. So I can no, see no, he, he would he would definitely need to be reading it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, waiting for dinner, they get the first wind of the approaching dry season, and that dries out the officers' uniforms, which otherwise have been clinging rather damply to their figures here. At dinner, Stephen compliments his neighbour, a Marine lieutenant from the stately on the endurance that he observes in the Marines, standing, marching, and wheeling with perfect regularity in blazing sun, just as in bitter cold. There is something, says Stephen, wonderfully agreeable in the sight of that self-command, or one might almost say relinquishment of self, a very Catholic sentiment, by the way, Um, in that formal rhythmic precision, the tuck of drum, the stamp and clash of arms, whether it has anything to do with war or not, I cannot tell. But the spectacle delights me. And there's already a bit of a tease going on here. If I was a very macho, war-minded lieutenant of Marines, I might mind that Stephen says that he can't tell whether it's anything to do with war or not. But the lieutenant is actually pleased. He takes it as a compliment. He says, there's something more to drill than steadiness and obedience to command. He says he doesn't know much about Pyrrhic dancers, but likes to think that the Marines' maneuvers are related to them and to their sacred function. Stephen notes several examples of the religious elements of dancing, like David before the Ark, or the dancing that takes place in parts of Spain, where dance is part of the Mass. And by the way, Stephen reported dancing ashore on the Sabbath way back in Master and Commander, so we know he's got form there. Now, Mike, I I know of Pyrrhic as a description of a victory, meaning a a hollow or a a worthless victory, but it turns out that there are Pyrrhic dancers as well. Pyrrhic dancers were Greek war dancers, practiced as training for war, simulating combat in the form of a dance. And Plato talks about the attack moves and the defense moves. Homer talks about Achilles dancing around the burning funeral of Patroclus, his friend and wartime companion, and perhaps lover. And maybe there's a connection there between Greek mythology and what some people think about the relationships between men aboard HMS Stately. Yeah. Later, Stephen returns to the subject, saying that he recalls the Pyrrhic dances were danced in armor. And the Marine says, well, we do too, though with some changes over time, he taps his gorget, a little silver crescent on the front of his red coat, and says that that's his breastplate. It's smaller than Achilles, but so are today's desserts, he says. Hmm. So Pullings hears a cry from above, says he has to leave to tell the Commodore that land has been sighted. And without the captain present, the talk grows much louder and freer. Stephen and the Marine you know, have to talk now much louder to hear each other. And over time, Stephen realizes that his neighbor, the Marine, has had way too much to drink and now seems to be focusing on conversation at the purser's end of the table, where several people are talking often at once about sodomy. The second lieutenant of the Thames says that they are never really men. They may have their pretty ways, they may read books, but he says, 
They will not toe the scratch in a fight. And he relates his own experience of being in a gun crew where, you know, two of these sodomites, he says, hid when the fighting got hot. You know, there are other opinions voiced, some more tolerant, some benign, but most, the text says, were violently opposed to sodomites. And Stephen tries to tell the Marine that it's probably not worth mentioning, you know, Achilles, lover here, or the Theban Legion in this atmosphere, but sees that he's now too drunk and too hooked on the other conversation. And we, we don't, we've already talked about Achilles uh, and, and Homer there and that thing. And the Theban Legion, I, I was chasing down. And I think Stephen, a la O'Brien, is referring yeah. to the sacred band of Thebes. You know, huh. it's a troop of select soldiers made up of 150 pairs of male lovers, which formed the elite force of the Theban army in the fourth century BC, the force mm. that ended Spartan domination. The Theban legion, as opposed to the sacred band of Thebes, refers to the martyrs of Agonum, the old name for you know, what is now Switzerland, and a Roman legion who was said to have converted to Christianity all at once en masse was martyred together there in 286 AD because they were no longer willing to submit to emperor worship and to sacrifice to the emperor, as the Roman legions were required to do. St. Maurice, the Legion's chief saint, but there were a number of saints out of that. They were originally the garrison of the city of Thebes in Egypt till the Emperor Maximian ordered them to march to Gaul to assist against the rebels of Burgundy. So I think we've kind of crisscrossed these two references, the sacred band of Thebes being, you know, yeah. a, an excellent example in Stephen's argument here. Huh. Really, really interesting little bit of history there. And you can see why it becomes, you know, an illustration of the point of difference that's emerging across this dinner table here. The lieutenant from the Thames says, even if I had the same tastes, I should be very sorry to have to go into action aboard a ship commanded by one of them, however stately. And now it all starts to kick off. If that is a fling against my ship, sir, cried the marine, pushing his chair back and standing up, very pale, I must ask you to withdraw it at once. The stately's fighting qualities admit no sort of question. I was not aware that you belonged to stately, sir, said the lieutenant. I see there are others who do not choose to toe the scratch, said the marine, which is flinging back the insult about cowardice back in his face straight away. There's a general clamour around the table, extreme concern to separate the two men before this turns into a, a challenge or worse, uh, puts them into their separate boats. The stately's most unhappily manned by some of her captain's young ladies, as the author describes them here. This really doesn't seem to bode well, Mike, for the integrity of the squadron that's going to be heading offshore together. Tension between two of the most problematic ships in the squadron here. And just as this is happening, part of the squadron reaches the point of cutting off fugitives from Phillips Island, and they receive word that the slavers have been delayed and are not expected to appear for three days. And Mike, this is leaving the main part of the squadron here feeling very off balance at a critical moment in the evolution of the mission here. But by the way, I'm going to claim credit for one tiny little bit of editing that I think I might have spotted, a little editing mistake here. The text, just as this dinner party breaks up, um, refers to slavers being delayed at Takondi, T-A-K-O-N-D-I. And as far as I can tell, there's no such place. I do know that there's a place called Takoradi on this part of the coast of what is now Ghana. There is the location for a well-known British Air Force base in the Second World War. 
And knowing that Takaradi exists and seeing Takondi written on the page here makes me wonder if this is an accident of transcribing. We, we know that Patrick O'Brien wrote, as he called it, with pen and ink like a Christian when he did his first draft and then corrected it also by hand. And I can imagine the RA of Takaradi written in cursive script could be transcribed into an N, maybe possibly, and it never got picked up by proof editing or by O'Brien himself or by Mary when she did her own editing and, uh, and, and proof checking as well. Nicely spotted, Ian. <laughs> well, a, a very tiny amount of uh, of hubris there, I think. We were still in that squadron there. Square is now conning the Bologna, hmm. and Jack takes the squadron right into the harbor and signals for all captains. Later, he tells Stephen they're going to send the brigs and the schooners east to cut off any coastwise boats or canoes that could carry a warning to the slavers. You know, they're waiting. You know, we know the slavers are now going to be delayed a few days here. And both Huell and Square, Jackson's a capital seaman, by the way, say there's a fair chance that they'll still catch the slavers, given the weather, given the breezes. And Jack describes him, three Dutchmen and a Dane bound for Havana. And Jack says, Stephen, that, you know, given this delay, Stephen has time to go ashore with Square for a couple of days, but he must be ready to put off at high tide on Wednesday. And Stephen says, well, what, what time is that? And Jack is, is really frustrated. He just can't understand why after all these many years, a, a man of Stephen's part can adapt to the rhythm of moon and tide. And he impatiently tells him why seven in the evening, of course. Uh, and it's agonizing that Stephen is creeping closer and closer, despite all of the circumstances that have almost stopped him, creeping closer and closer to making his journey ashore and doing some botanizing in this swamp. Now, we get a reminder of that from Jack Aubrey here. Jack changes his tone, says, I remember what you told me about the miasmas of Freetown after sunset. Please, he says, take the utmost care, stay indoors, away from noxious exhalations. Back to the miasma theory again. Walk out only when the day is aired. And Stephen says, don't worry, instead of Freetown's deathly fever swamp, I'll be walking just by a brisk river with two falls. The miasmata are not to be feared by running water, only by stagnant pools. And Stephen excuses himself. He's going to get things going. He's going to consult with Square. He says, in two days, going steady, we might pass his plane with baobabs and monstrous bats and reach the country of the Potto and Temminck's pangolin. And that, as we know, Mike, is the end of chapter eight. Nice. Pangolins and potters, hey? Is that what's in wait? There you go. You know, I, I thought this was just an incredible collection of observations or stories about people being people. I mean, there was yeah. such in this chapter, big things, little things. Yeah. You know, the able black in the sick birth, not wanting to trouble anybody with his urinary problems. Jack thinking about the upside and downside of flag rank. Stephen remembering that he told Jack this story before being so upset with himself only to learn that Jack really wasn't listening. He was worried Stephen might be upset with him. Stephen's indignation about people thinking he's forgotten it's Sunday when in fact he had. The Marine Lieutenant and the Thames Lieutenant's clash over the honor of the ship, you know, yeah. comparing squares, tattoos, and teeth with the frilled shirts of European men and that Joseph Conrad Easter egg. You know, this whole continuing reflection on the human condition mirrored by attitudes. Here we got attitudes about slavery and sodomy uh, and the way different times and cultures, you know, O'Brien's just given us such richness here. So 
much to reflect upon, so much to enjoy, so subtly and delicately interwoven in everyday life, perfectly presented, historically accurate, while continuing to move this fascinating book of the canon along as we're Mm. here, still with our old friends, our loved ones, and watching (laughs) these relationships between characters. I'm I'm just, uh, you know, I, I, I continuously blown away by a chapter like this. It's great, isn't it? And with that rare bit of actual Canadade smoke and thunder action at the very beginning, the whole of the rest of this chapter is another example of actions taking place at a distance. You know, we hear about what happened on the missions ashore. We hear about the circumstances that led to Huel getting his arm wounded. We hear about all of this stuff going on, but actually there's plenty enough for O'Brien to observe at first hand and write about for us with just exactly as you say, Mike, that the people and their circumstances and how they misunderstand each other and how they misunderstand themselves. Oh, it's, it's really great stuff. What are we, we're in chapter eight now. We've got a couple of chapters to go. Maybe this is going to turn into a straightforward, you know, race to defeat some more slavers and then a race to Ireland somehow. Maybe it's going to turn into a more straightforward naval novel, or maybe there's more tension. Maybe there's more ashore here with the slavers. Maybe there's more tension between the ships and the crews of the Stately and the Thames. Stephen's going ashore with another kind of enemy uh, in the offing. Maybe he'll be back on time. Maybe he'll be back late. Maybe this rhyme about the perils of the Bight of Benin is going to come back to bite Stephen. Hmm. No word from home as yet either for Jack or Stephen. Especially Stephen. I'm thinking, what's been going on with Diana right, here? Right. And uh, maybe we should check in, Mike, with the uh, with, with the online betting sites or even with Vegas. What what are the chances that this will all turn out well? I guess Ian, there's only one way to find out. What do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. <laughs> he says that this Dutch naturalist had written the book and Square says Mr. Klopstocks Klopstocks Square says Mr. Klopstocks sir no book